One of the things I mention on a regular basis, because it's such a significant part of our lives as Christians in this society, is the way our culture disciples us to be people of instant gratification. If we have to wait over 90 seconds at a traffic light, we begin to get edgy. If we are over, if we are over three cars back in the drive through lane, we think it's too long. If we want something, we can order and have it shipped overnight delivery. We have instant pudding, instant potatoes, instant gravy, instant coffee, and much, much more. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things are inherently wrong, because they're not. But the problem is the way we become trained or conditioned or discipled. We can easily be discipled or trained to expect everything to be resolved in a very short time. On television or in the movies, everything works out in less than a couple of hours. Very few of our popular stories end with unanswered questions, unless the sequel is already in production. But that's not a healthy expectation in real life. When it comes to many of life's issues or problems or complexities, everything isn't resolved in a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks or even a couple of years. Many times we have to wait and wait patiently. In fact, some things won't be resolved until eternity. Are you willing to accept that, beloved? Some things won't be resolved in this life. And some wrongs won't be righted in this life. That's a hard way to live, especially for Christians living in 21st century America. But it's the way we are called to live as sojourners and pilgrims. We live our lives knowing that there are some things that won't be righted immediately or soon. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11, 1 defines faith in this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is trusting the God we cannot see and trusting that He will eventually resolve all things and right all wrongs. That's a major part of what it means to live by faith. It involves entrusting ourselves to the care of one we have never seen, not only for our our eternal destiny, but also during the sufferings of life. That's what our text is about this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. So I invite you to turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, and please follow along as I read verses 19 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 19, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. 
For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We began considering this text in our last message, but because there is so much richness in it, we weren't able to make it all the way through in one message. As we saw in the previous message, this passage was originally directed towards slaves. That is a stunning thought when you stop to consider it. Some of the most profound words about our Savior recorded in this letter were originally written to slaves. They were a group of people who had to learn how to endure through hard times, and that is why Peter had so much to say to them. And what he had to say to them has much to say to us. The principles and the patterns set forth in these verses have the power to transform our very lives if we will embrace what is said and taught here in this text. In verse 19, Peter says, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Here, Peter exhorts us to do what we do in life because of conscience toward God. The ESV uses the phrase mindful of God, and the NIV says because he is conscious of God. That is a reminder that there are times, sadly, when we live life without any awareness of God or any conscious thought of Him. Even as Christians, we We're just going through life and doing what comes naturally. That's why Peter makes this comment here in verse 19. One of the few things that can enable us to endure grief and suffer wrongfully is being mindful or conscious of God. That is the vertical focus that permeates this passage. Verse 20 says, For what credit is it? If when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. That is such a challenging verse. How does the presence of Christ in your life set you apart and cause you to excel? That's the question or the principle behind Verse 20. Anyone can take harsh treatment. Anyone can take uh, treatment, uh, difficult treatment when it's deserved. But what is really commendable before God is when we endure unfair treatment patiently. As I said last week, I think this is especially difficult for us as American Christians. We are trained and discipled by our culture to stand up for our rights. We are told that our rights are the most important thing we have, and we often believe that. 
But the fact of the matter is that our rights are not the most important thing we have. A clear conscience before God and a shining testimony for Christ are far more important. That's why Peter adds the next verse. He says in verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, or for you, leaving an example that you should follow his steps. The first phrase in this verse says, To this you were called, and it is referring to the patient endurance just mentioned in the previous verse. We have been called to patient endurance. There are many times or seasons or circumstances in life when we just have to endure. You put one foot in front of the other and you do the right thing before God. Not because you feel like it emotionally or are emotionally motivated. It's not easy and it's not pleasant, but it's what God has called us to do. And during those times, it is so important that we focus, fix our attention on our Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's not just a cliche. That's not a platitude. If you think it is, then you will really miss out on one of the greatest sources of strength and motivation available for the child of God. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example of how to defeat temptation, yes, but he is also our example of how to patiently endure. He has left us an example so that we should follow his steps. He experienced adversity, and he experienced unfair treatment. He knew what it was like to have to patiently endure. In fact, you will remember that Satan tempted him to misuse his prerogatives of deity so that he wouldn't have to patiently endure difficulty as a man. But Jesus refused to handle his suffering in a wrong manner. Look to him and learn from him. And draw your strength from Him. Let Him be your motivation. His sufferings and death not only provided for our redemption, His sufferings provided an example for us to learn from and draw from in our own lives. If you want to see the wrong way to handle suffering and difficulty and unjust treatment, just look around at our culture, just look around at our society. You don't have to look very far or very long. You can find all kinds of wrong examples, and you can get all kinds of wrong advice, even from other Christians. But if you want to live your life with a commendable conscience toward God, to borrow Peter's phrase here, look at and seek to emulate the example of Jesus. The way he handled and walked through suffering is our example. So that begs the question, how did our Lord suffer? Peter mentions three specifics here in this text. Jesus suffered blamelessly, he suffered graciously, and he suffered trustfully. Notice verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, "...who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth." The point that Peter is making in this verse is that Jesus did not deserve 
what he suffered. His suffering was not the result of anything he had done wrong in life. By the way, this is one of the reasons why all four gospel writers spend so much time on the details of the arrest and the trials of Jesus. They want to make sure that the accurate record is established. Jesus was not guilty of anything. Pilate himself said that multiple times. Jesus was not guilty. And when the apostles preached in the book of Acts, they emphasized this same point to all their audiences. They made it clear that Jesus had done nothing wrong. This is something that we could fail to see as important because we know Jesus was innocent. I mean, we know who Jesus was. We know his character. However, if you were the one ministering in the first century among people who knew that Jesus was tried and condemned in a judicial Roman court, you would be aware of the importance of stressing the fact that the condemnation of Jesus was baseless. We live many years on this side of the cross. But the believers who lived in that time period were living among people who didn't know all the facts and only knew that Jesus was sentenced to the death penalty. Therefore, it was extremely important to stress the fact that Jesus did not do anything to bring upon himself that sentence. That's the purpose of Peter's words here in verse 22. This verse is actually a quote from Isaiah 53, 9, which is a chapter containing some of the most specific prophecies in all of Hebrew Scripture regarding the death of the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah wanted to make sure hundreds of years in advance that everyone would know that the Messiah's death would not be due to anything wrong he had done or said. Jesus was sinless. He was blameless. Although we won't be sinless in this life, it is obvious that Peter is making a parallel application for us in this statement. He is basically saying this, we need to make sure that we are above reproach in life so that anything we suffer will not be the result of our wrongs. Peter already said this up in verse 20, as we just saw a moment ago. But here he makes the same point by reminding us of the example of our Lord. Jesus suffered blamelessly. Second, he suffered graciously. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's the heart of this text. Peter writes these words to encourage us to be mindful of God and conscious of God so that we entrust ourselves to him when we suffer. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. The word revile means to curse and to throw insults. We have a little saying in our culture that goes like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know that's not true, don't you? 
No one can honestly say that words don't hurt. It takes as much self-control to hold back when insulted as it does when hit. Maybe even more. Jesus was cursed, jeered at, insulted, mocked, and reviled. But he exercised astonishing self-control. He did not revile in return. How about you? How do you respond when you are hit with insulting words? Should we just quickly move on? It's hard, isn't it? Jesus did not give in to the temptation to respond wrongly. The next phrase says, When he suffered, he did not threaten. Think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to threaten those who abused him. Actually, in some senses, it may have been easier, and maybe that's poor wording, but easier for him to have done it than us. And why why do I say that? Because he could have easily said things like this. If you continue, you are really going to get it come judgment day. I will make sure that you get what's coming to you. I am the one you're going to answer to on judgment day. And you are really going to regret this. Jesus could have said that. Only he could really say that. But he said no such thing. He suffered graciously. Instead of reviling, instead of threatening, Peter tells us that he committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Jesus simply surrendered the situation to God, knowing that God would do what is right. There's an interesting play on words in this passage. When you compare it to what John tells us, in his gospel about the crucifixion of Jesus. John 19.11 tells us that Jesus was handed over to Pilate to be tried. John 19.16 tells us that Pilate eventually handed him over to be crucified, that is, handed Jesus over to be crucified. And here, Peter tells us that Jesus handed himself over to the Father to judge righteously. Jesus was handed over to Pilate to be tried. Pilate handed over Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus handed himself over to the Father to judge righteously. Beloved, even when, or maybe I should say especially when, we are handed over to unjust circumstances, unfair treatment. That is the time to hand ourselves over to God. Do you understand what that means? It's an internal surrender. So it makes it hard to define this or describe this. It's an internal letting go of feeling like you have to make sure that you aren't being treated unfairly. That's what it is. It's not so much external. It's it's an internal surrender. 
a letting go of feeling like you have to make sure that you're not being treated unfairly. Jesus knew that the Father would do what is right. He knew that the day would come when the wrongs would be made right. It may not be quickly, and it may not be as soon as we would like, but the Father is a righteous judge, and as a righteous judge, He will right the wrongs of life. And let me warn you, if you don't learn to live your life with that confidence, then you have the potential to be consumed with resentment and bitterness and a heart of revenge. That's a terrible way to live life. Yet there are many who live life that way, and sadly, some of them are Christians. In fact, it wouldn't be surprising if some of you in this room are like that on the inside. Some do a pretty good job hiding it, and some are so consumed with it they can't hide it. It just comes out. It comes out in words. It comes out in statements and it comes out in attitudes on a regular basis. Learn from the example of our Lord. If anyone had reason to be eaten up with the sting of injustice, he did. If anyone had reason to be consumed with this, this, this perspective that this is not right, this is not fair, and to be eaten up with that, Jesus, more than anyone else, could have thought that way. He was the only perfect man ever to live. And he was condemned to death by people who were blatant sinners. In the, the, worst, the worst case of judicial injustice in the history of mankind. But instead of giving in to the emotional consternation and eruption that often comes with injustice, Peter tells us he graciously committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus suffered trustfully. This is where the rubber meets the road in our Christianity. It's easy to attend church and Go to Bible study, Bible class, sing songs of worship. But what do we do when we are insulted? What do we do when we are treated unfairly? That is when what's on the inside comes out for all to see, including ourselves. When Peter mentions this unjust experience of Jesus and his death, he can't help but elaborate on this centerpiece of, the, of our Christian faith. He just can't stop there. It's so beautiful, so powerful how he elaborates. He says in verse 24 of the Lord Jesus and his death, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. There is a subtle 
but extremely important shift that Peter makes when he adds this verse. Let me explain it. He has been telling us that Jesus is our example. But now he tells us something more. Jesus was not only our example in his death, he was our substitute in his death. That's the shift. That's the change that Peter makes at this point. He tells us that Jesus died not only as our example, he died in our place. He died for our sins. That is why we call his death a substitutionary atonement. It wasn't merely an exemplary death. Certainly it was exemplary. But it wasn't merely an exemplary death. It was a substitutionary death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, referring to Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' death was vicarious, which means in place of or instead of. There are two Greek words used throughout the New Testament to convey this concept. Let me mention them to you. One of them is the Greek word huper, H-U-P-E-R. This word can simply mean for the benefit of, or it can mean in place of. Both meanings are valid. Liberal scholars jump on this word to try to say that Jesus only died for our benefit as an example of selfless love, but they deny the concept of substitution. They say it is archaic, it's cruel, it's a bad way to present God as if God has to have someone die, blood sacrificed as a substitute. So they reject that notion. Yet that's the, that's the exact word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it clearly means instead of. Jesus died instead of us. Jesus became sin for us. So when the Bible says Jesus died for us, as, is, as it often does say, it means he died not only for our benefit, he died in our place. Furthermore, there is another Greek word used in the New Testament to describe the death of Jesus, and that is the little word anti, A-N-T-I. That Greek word cannot mean, understand this, it cannot mean for the benefit of, it has to mean in place of or instead of. This is the word used in Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, here you go, for many, anti many in Greek. Jesus came to give his life in place of or instead of many. That is clearly substitution. Jesus died a vicarious death. That is a substitutionary death for sinners. A perfect illustration of this is found in Genesis 22 where we have the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac. Most of you are familiar with that story. If you know the story, then you know that God at the last minute provided a ram for Abraham to offer instead of his own son Isaac. The ram died instead of Isaac. And Jesus died instead of sinners. Not talking merely about physical death, of course. 
because we still may experience physical death should the Lord tarry, but eternal spiritual death. Jesus' death was a substitution for sinners. That's what Peter tells us here. He says that Jesus died for us, and when he did, Peter also makes another remarkable claim here. He says there is a sense in which we died also. He says that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Now what does Peter mean by this statement? He is reminding us that because we are in Christ, we are joined to him. When he died, there's a sense in which we died with him positionally, spiritually, mystically, whatever term you want to use there. The old man died, which is the person we were before we came to faith in the Lord Jesus. The old man died, the old person, and we will never be that person again. We have been released from our master-slave relationship to sin so that we might live for righteousness, Peter says here. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to look at it now, but the Apostle Paul goes into great detail on that one phrase, that very subject, in Romans 6, 1 through 11. The death of Jesus not only paid for our sins, it also released us from sin's mastery over us. Now we can live righteous lives. And it's all because of what the cross accomplished. Which is why Peter adds the phrase here at the end of this verse, by whose stripes you were healed. Or depending on your translation, by whose wounds you were healed. Do you want to hear something interesting? Well, I'm going to say it whether you're interested or not. So the Greek word that is translated wounds or stripes here in this verse is not actually plural in the Greek text. It's singular. And the Hebrew word used in Isaiah 53, 5, which is where this phrase comes from, is also singular. Both Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew, Greek, it's singular. Yet I, I, I don't know if I've noticed an English translation that translates it singular. I think virtually all, if not all, translate it plural. But it would be better to translate this phrase, by whose wound, singular, you were healed. I mention this point because there are many strange teachings about the stripes of Jesus. The stripes he received from his beatings, the wounds he received. But that idea completely misses the point both of Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2. Isaiah and Peter are not talking about the stripes of Jesus, the stripes on his body. They are talking about the mortal wound, singular, of his death. The mortal wound of his death. His death is what brings us spiritual healing, not stripes on his back. His death is what brings us restoration. His death is what brings us salvation. Which is why Peter closes the chapter with the next verse. Verse 25, he says, For you were like sheep going astray. Notice the word for at the beginning of the verse. Peter is explaining why Jesus did this. Why did he die, bear our sins in his body? Why did we need to be healed spiritually? Why? Verse 25, For because you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
as we have seen a couple times now, Peter is using Isaiah 53 all the way through this section of his letter. It's, it's almost as if he has Isaiah 53 open as he's writing this portion of his letter. Back in verse 22, he quoted Isaiah 53.9 specifically. In the, in the previous verse, he quoted a phrase out of Isaiah 53.5. And here in this verse, he alludes to Isaiah 53.6, which says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's an accurate description of all of us. We've each turned to his own way. That's so specific the way Isaiah states that. He doesn't say we've all gone the same way, though he could have said that, because his point is we've all gone the way of rebellion, the way of transgression, the way of sin. But he says each has turned to his own way because my way of sin and your way of sin may not be the same. It's still sin, still rebellion, but each has turned to his own way. Whatever that way is, it's the wrong way. That's an accurate description of all of us. We were all wandering and doing our own thing. But Peter says here, the great shepherd found us. And he brought us to himself. This is a picture of the repentant faith we have at salvation. True salvation involves turning from and turning to. We turn from our sin, we turn from ourself, and we turn to the Lord. Turning from sin is repentance. Turning from self is repentance. Turning to the Lord is faith. That's why the Bible uses those terms sometimes interchangeably, repentance and faith. One is turning from, the other is turning to. That's genuine salvation. And that's what Peter is describing here. He is picturing our salvation as returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It's as if Peter is sort of uh, alluding to the story that we all know of Adam and Eve because we, there's a sense in which we were in Adam and he turned from the Lord. We've all turned from the Lord and now he's picturing salvation as returning to where Adam was at first in his right relationship to God and where we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. So he pictures our salvation as returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That is such beautiful imagery. Jesus is the one who looks out for us as, a, as our shepherd. The writers of the New Testament loved this imagery. In John 10, Jesus is called the good shepherd. He calls himself that. In Hebrews 13, he is called the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, we'll see, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, he is called the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. And as our shepherd, he, he keeps watch over our souls, the last phrase in this verse says. He cares for us. Over in chapter 5, verse 7, Peter will say later in his letter, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Beloved, don't ever forget and don't ever doubt that Jesus keeps watch over your soul and he cares. That doesn't mean that life will be easy. It doesn't mean that we will be exempt from suffering. Remember, these words were originally addressed to slaves, many of whom were suffering unjustly. 
especially those who had a harsh master, an unfair master. So that's why Peter wrote them. He wanted to encourage them to look to the Lord Jesus in the midst of their adversity. And so he tells them and us here in this passage, Jesus is our standard. Jesus is our substitute. And he is our shepherd. He cares. And one day he will right all the wrongs of this world. He sees what no one else sees. And he knows what no one else knows. And one day he will reward his people. So hang in there. Be faithful. Back up with me to Hebrews chapter 6 as we close this morning. Just two letters before 1 Peter. James is between the two. Hebrews chapter 6. Maybe this verse sums up all that we have seen this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. If there is a verse that sums it up in in one statement, this may be it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. Now remember what we were looking at there in 1 Peter. A lot of times life is unjust. A lot of times people who are over us are unjust, unfair. But God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love or the love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That verse is saying God sees what no one else sees. God knows what no one else knows. And one day he will reward his people. He is not unjust. He does not forget. So do what you do in life unto him. Do what you do in life conscious of God, mindful of God, thinking about God because he sees, he knows, he's righteous, and he doesn't forget. He will reward his people. So be faithful. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing this morning, for just a couple minutes, take time to think about, further meditate on what you have seen and heard from God's Word this morning. Precious, precious promises from Scripture regarding our God. But I have to tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, then those promises really don't pertain to you. They don't apply to you. So if you're here today, you're you're not a Christian. That is, you, you don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. That's the greatest need in your life. That's what you need to focus on. That's that's what you need to think about and and deal with in your life. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior, or if there's any doubt in your mind, don't 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 push that doubt aside. Don't it, it doesn't hurt to make sure, to make certain if there's doubt in your mind. Right now, this very moment, just in the quietness of your own heart and the humility of your own heart, humble yourself before the Lord and talk to Him quietly, silently, saying, Lord Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner. I I want your forgiveness. 
please grant me your salvation. Cleanse me, change me, take me, make me who you want me to be. And you don't have to say that. Whatever's on your heart, express that to the Lord. He sees, he hears, he knows. But if you are not a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then as we've seen this morning, you need to repent. Turn from and turn to. Turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus. Turn from self to the Lord Jesus. So I urge you to do that in your heart right now, this moment. And if you are a child of God, then like me, you need the vertical perspective that this passage screams at us to be mindful of God, conscious of God, living our lives not as practical atheists with God excluded from our thinking, but living our lives always with God on our mind. What would he want from me? How does he want me to live? How does he want me to respond? What does he want me to do about this situation in life? Conscious of God, mindful of God in all of life. Father, thank you so very much for this, this encouragement from your word and this challenge from your word. It's, it is stunning to think that these, these words were originally written to slaves, some of whom had harsh masters, some of whom were in very, very difficult circumstances, being treated wrongly, unfairly. And yet your spirit guided Peter to write words that could could really give them hope and transform them into a, a, a vertical perspective of their situation with a reminder that you see, you know, you care, and you will reward your people. So we should be faithful. We need to, to hang in there, to keep pressing forward, as Paul said in Philippians 3, pressing toward the goal, pressing toward the prize. So, Father, be pleased to cause these words to grip our hearts, to grip our very souls, so that we don't soon forget them, so that we don't close our Bibles and walk out of this place forgetting what we have heard and seen from your word, because this is, this is such powerful truth to which you've exposed us, both last Lord's Day and this morning in this text. Use it in our lives greatly. Use it in our lives as you see fit. And we pray these things in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus, our example and our substitute and our shepherd. We pray in his name. Amen.